From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, January 27th. Today, I'm joined by Impact Alpha's Jessica Pothering, who this week covered transparency in the multi-trillion dollar development finance marketplace. Hi, Jessica, and welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Brian. Great to be here. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Voluntary carbon markets face a reckoning over credit quality and environmental impact. Demand for carbon credits dropped 4% last year after soaring in 2021. Furthermore, demand for credits generated by avoided deforestation plunged 40%. A series of reports have taken aim at the integrity of the projects underlying these credits. The downturn has spurred debate over whether the purpose of the credits is solely to help companies meet their net zero goals or to drive revenues to conservation projects and communities on the front lines of climate change. Currency risk is complicating investments in emerging markets, just as long-term patient capital is urgently needed for green infrastructure and climate adaptation. As many as 60% of low-income countries are in or face a high risk of debt distress. Sri Lanka, Ghana, and Zambia have already defaulted. In a guest post at Impact Alpha, an official from the Africa Finance Corp, Usayuri Urubusu Ubade, has some ideas for mitigating currency risks to keep the capital flowing. Municipal bonds, or muties as they're called, and other fixed income investments can offer opportunities to address racial inequalities. On Wednesday, February 1st, this will be the topic of the next Agents of Impact call that will dig into some investable opportunities. We'll hear from Ryan Bowers of Activest, Diane Manuel of Aracena Social Capital, and Eric Glass of Justice Capital. And in a sign of how the Inflation Reduction Act is turbocharging climate investment, Generate Capital raised $880 million to capitalize green infrastructure. The San Francisco-based company raised $2 billion in 2021. Generate is an investor, owner, and operator of community solar systems, EV fleets, and municipal wastewater treatment facilities. In smaller deals, EcoZen in India raised $25 million for solar-powered irrigation pumps, refrigerators, and other climate-friendly equipment to help the country's smallholder farmers weather climate-related impacts. EcoZen says its products curb food waste and reduce the use of diesel fuel. And finally, BioElements scored $30 million for bioplastics in Latin America. Chile and other countries are banning or restricting some single-use plastics. BioElements uses resin-based materials that decompose in landfills and compost bins in as little as six months. And now it's time for our featured conversation. I'm joined once again by Impact Alpha's own Jessica Pothering. Now, Jessica, this week you wrote a story about a new report about transparency in international development finance institutions, or DFIs. So this was a dense report. There's a lot to unpack here. But let's start at the top. Can you give us a little context about DFIs and what their significance is in the broader development and impact spaces? Thanks, Brian. Uh, Yes, a lot to unpack for sure. Um, Okay, so the quick synopsis of what this is about and why it matters is DFIs are these public and quasi-public finance institutions um, that direct money from mostly wealthy countries uh, to mostly middle and low-income countries for development initiatives. And collectively, around the world, they deploy trillions of dollars um, 
And in countries that struggle to finance their own infrastructure projects or healthcare systems or agriculture or small business um, or like climate adaptation, development finance institutions capital is a really crucial resource. Um, and that's especially true now in light of urgent and very costly challenges like climate change. So yeah, I said they, they can be a crucial resource. They, they could be um, provided development finance does what it's actually intended to do. And that is primarily to seed or de-risk projects and businesses so that private capital is incentivized to invest. And, you know, DFIs, they're not meant to just be bankrolling development work. They're actually there to mobilize capital. Okay, so that's helpful, broad context on the DFI space. But you mentioned that there is a new report out on this. What are the key takeaways? Right. So this nonprofit organization in the UK called Publish What You Fund released a report this week called the DFI Transparency Index. And what they did was take a deep look into what kinds of data DFIs are publishing about their investments and the impacts of those investments, as well as what kind of information DFIs should be publishing to the public. Remember, most of the capital, the DFIs and these other large financial institutions called multilateral development banks, which are uh, internationally collaborative institutions, they have multiple international stakeholders. You can think of like the Asian Development Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank in, the, in uh, Latin America. So most of the money that these institutions are deploying is coming from public sources. The United States has a development bank called the International Development Finance Corps. That's a government agency. So given that most of the capital these institutions are investing is public money, there should be a lot of information out there about what they're investing in and how those investments are doing. The problem is, as this report shows, they're not really publishing that much information. The report actually is pretty scathing in its conclusion. What it stated actually um, early on in the report is, across the board, DFIs are insufficiently transparent. DFIs are not providing evidence of impact, data regarding mobilization, or proof of accountability to communities. For many DFIs, even basic information about their investments is not publicly available. So what published what what you fund did was they engaged 27 DFIs and multilateral development banks for their research, um, which they conducted over several years. And on a scale of one to 100, only two organizations, the World Bank's International Finance Corporation and the African Development Bank scored above 50%. Those were both actually in the low 50s. So it's not like they're knocking transparency out of the park or anything. The highest ranking of the bilateral DFIs is the US Development Finance corporation, and they scored, I think, 38.2%. Wow. So that's a pretty uh, damning assessment, but uh, from Publish What You Fund. But what specifically are these DFIs and multilateral development banks failing to disclose that we should care about? Well, for one, the trillions of dollars they're deploying is meant to be catalyzing trillions of dollars of private capital. But we don't really have any visibility into whether or not that's actually happening. The issue of mobilizing capital is where these institutions actually scored the worst. Um, Gary Forster of Publish What You Fund presented the results of the index at an event in Washington, D.C. this week, and here's what he had to say. Only one institution was able to show its actual performance against what it had planned to do. And this is at once a worrying finding, but also a demonstration of what's possible. As Impact Alpha has been covering, this is really a hot button issue in the world of development finance. A host of actors from climate envoy John Kerry to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to international political leaders like the Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, Mia Motley, have been calling on development finance to be more creative and more risk-taking and more catalytic, particularly around climate issues. That's right. And, you know, 
I have a lot of conversations with officials from DFIs. I sit in a lot of conversations with officials from DFIs. And yeah, there's some really creative work happening in some of those organizations. But what I hear most often from them is, you know, we have to make commercial returns on our investments. Um, And so if what they're doing is largely investing in projects and businesses that are going to generate a commercial return, how then is it that they're building markets? I mean, how are they ushering in capital that wouldn't be there otherwise? And one of the conversations I had with Gary actually about the index, he shared that throughout the research process, they even uncovered examples of DFIs crowding out commercial capital. And that's what that means is there were private investors who would have invested in some of those projects had DFIs not inked those deals first. And okay, I mean, there are obvious questions about the terms or the cost of capital for those projects, but DFIs really aren't meant to be competing against the private market. What about the impact of the work that these DFIs are already doing? What do we know about that? So that's another area that's woefully underreported by DFIs, unfortunately, um, especially on a project by project basis. The really granular data about what investments are achieving, um, there's only one DFI, it's a Danish DFI, that discloses its actual impact performance data against its targeted impacts. Um, at the Publish What You Fund event in DC this week, Nadia Dar of international aid organization Oxfam put this problem in the context of all of the money that needs to be mobilized for the climate agenda um, and the sustainable development goals in particular. We're at a moment where there's just so many conversations about how we can boost international finance. How can we mobilize again? We're back to that conversation of mobilizing the billions to the trillions through the private sector. But that's a quantity question. We need to also be thinking about the quality question. And there needs to be way more attention on that. We cannot be having the quantity conversation without the quality conversation. And we can't have the quality conversation without the transparencies. So it sounds like, Jessica, that what this report really does is to establish a baseline to start to work on these issues moving forward. Exactly. I mean, as disappointing as the results are, this index puts a stake in the ground on where the problems are in development finance um, and gives all of the stakeholders involved, including the folks working within these institutions, something to build from. Many of these institutions are already under scrutiny and are undergoing reforms. Um, The U.S. Treasury Department is leading a sweeping reform effort at the World Bank right now. Um, And at the same time, The budgets within these organizations um, are growing, so there needs to be heightened pressure for them to show how they're putting their capital to use and what results they're delivering. So are there any changes that come out of this report and any of the research behind it that's led to any changes here? Yeah, I think that's where we can all be cautiously optimistic. I mean, the reality is these are big, very bureaucratic institutions. They're not the most tech savvy. Their portfolios touch multiple teams internally which may or may not all have the same process for tracking and documenting and communicating things. Um, For instance, Publish What You Find reviewed documents from more than 1,000 DFI investments for this research. And a lot of that was buried in very unuser-friendly PDFs. I mean, this is government, right? So most of the institutions that Publish What You Fund worked with have been very receptive to the feedback, Gary told me, and a few even immediately started trying to figure out what they could improve. Um, Elizabeth Boggs Davidson from the DFC acknowledged at this event this week that the DFC and most of its DFI peers have a very long way to go. But that DFC in particular had already launched an internal working group on disclosures that's focusing on what issues the agency can solve immediately. Here's what she had to say. It's really about 
um, breaking down the, the information requirements into manageable bites that we could tackle. It was about making, putting forward information on our transaction um, data sheets that you know, we, we increased the amount of information available by about 70% as a result of really working through these data points. Long term, she said, the focus will be on establishing what she called a quote-unquote permanent culture of transparency within the agency. So Jessica, what's your biggest takeaway on this research, given how much you cover the DFI marketplace and how prevalent DFI finance is in your coverage of emerging markets uh, for impact investing? Honestly, to me, this report felt like a bombshell. Um, a much needed one, though. For years, you know, we've been hearing a lot of excuse making from DFIs and multilateral banks about what and where they can't invest because of the risks or because they need commercial returns. So I think this could be an important piece of research for holding these institutions accountable to the capital mobilization and impacts that are expected from their stakeholders and from the public. The new Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, Margaret Kulo, spoke to this point at the event this week. Treasury is deeply concerned about the worsening impacts of global challenges on the poorest and most vulnerable countries and communities, and we don't see these impacts adequately addressed in our existing multilateral development finance infrastructure. Addressing global challenges and achieving poverty reduction and the sustainable development goals are interlinked and mutually reinforcing objectives. You can't have one without the other, and the MDBs must do both well. Kulo also went a step further, calling on the disclosure of DFIs and multilateral banks' financial performance, specifically their credit default statistics in emerging and frontier market investments. There's a database that contains this information. It's called the Global Emerging Markets Risk Database. It's just that that data isn't widely available. And she explained why this information is important for international development efforts to succeed. And GEMS data provides insight into markets for which, there, for which very little credit information exists, including low-income countries, frontier markets, fragile and conflict states. Wider access to GEMS would help build investor understanding of these markets and their ability to assess risks, potentially expanding their ability to invest there. So it sounds like that's a lot on Impact Alpha's radar to investigate and continue to follow on. Uh, so I expect that this will not be the last conversation we'll have on this subject, right, Jessica? I expect it's not, Brian. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jessica Pothering, for your great reporting on this matter. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. You can read more about all of these stories at impactalpha.com. Thanks to Jessica and our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Are you ready to try Impact Alpha? Sign up for Impact Alpha Open, which is free, directly at impactalpha.com. If you want to go deeper, grab a subscription and get full access to Impact Alpha, including the award-winning morning brief and our popular Agents of Impact calls, including that upcoming one on Wednesday, February 1st about the muni bond market. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. For Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh. Be sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take good care. <laughs>